Hello, readers. James Stavridis is a retired four-star admiral in the U.S. Navy whose career spanned more than 30 years and included roles as Supreme Allied Commander at NATO and leading U.S. Southern Command. He's also a published author, having just released his 12th book titled To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. Jim, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me on, Trey. It's my pleasure. So what was your goal with this book? I wanted to present a picture of what it's like to make decisions under extreme stress, stress of time, stress of circumstance, stress of danger. And I used a naval framework, kind of looking at a variety of sailors who've had to make decisions under extreme stress. But Trey, this is a book for anyone because all of us sooner or later are going to face a moment where you literally risk it all. And an example torn from the headlines, tragically, is this whole series of mass shootings. And how do you respond in a moment like this? Or it might be at the scene of an automobile crash, or it may be on a beach when someone's drowning just offshore. It may be at a hospital bed making a decision about a loved one at a moment of real stress. So the, the goal of the book is to show people making decisions under extreme stress and then to draw lessons from that, hence the title, To Risk It All. So you worked your way chronologically with these naval examples, starting with Captain John Paul Jones in the Revolutionary War. Uh, Jones essentially continued to fight a battle that was seemingly lost. How did he display the popular military tactic known as observe, orient, decide, and act, or an OODA loop? Yeah, OODA loop is something uh, used very frequently in modern warfare. And exactly as the words imply, you're going to observe, you're going to orient, you're going to decide, you're going to react. The OODA loop uh, for John Paul Jones, even 200, 300 years ago, was observing uh, across the water his opponent, this British ship, which outmanned him, orienting himself to where he was, making this decision to continue the resistance, and then adjusting as events went on. And uh, at the heart of everything you need to know about John Paul Jones is a single word, and it's determination. I call the chapter the power of no, which is to say, even when all appears to be lost, you can still recover in many circumstances, not all. But in the case of John Paul Jones, it's an inspirational story of determination that allowed him to win a pivotal battle for American independence. The second example comes in the early 1800s, 1804 to be exact, with Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, who was the U.S. Navy commander of the USS Intrepid, and he was responsible for a cutting out expedition in Tripoli Harbor and the Barbary states of North Africa. What exactly is cutting out, Jim, and why was Decatur's decision to do so impressive enough to want to include in this book? Cutting out is a nautical term for when a ship is captured and is being held in port, and it's tied up to the pier, literally by lines, uh, mooring lines, as we call them. Um, you can send a boarding party in, come aboard the ship from the seaborne side, and literally cut the lines and get the ship back out to sea and recover it. And that was uh, young Lieutenant Decatur's mission. Very dangerous, highly risky, 
And the reason I include him in the book is um, his ability to create a battle plan um, in advance, but then similarly to John Paul Jones, he has to adjust. And instead of being able to get the ship out once he's cut those lines, he sees that's not gonna be possible because the Barbary pirates are swarming the harbor. He decides correctly to destroy the ship. He burns it to the gunnels. And it's an example of the need to be able to change your mind in the middle of a operation, no matter how meticulous you're planning, you have to be prepared to change and spin and reorient much as John Paul Jones did. The third example happened during the U.S. Civil War involve, uh, involving Rear Admiral David Farragut. You write that Farragut's tolerance for risk was perhaps greater than any of the other decision makers in this volume. Why is that? Um, so picture this scene. He's in command of a handful of small ships, um, and they are steaming into Mobile Bay to attack Confederate uh, vessels that are both in port but also have shore batteries, cannons that are firing at them. And if that weren't enough, the harbor is full of mines um, floating just under the surface. In front of him is one ship, and he's watching it from the mast of his ship, and it blows up and sinks in front of him. This is the point at which almost anybody, including Admiral Jim Stavridis, would have said, hey, let's get out of here and figure out a new plan. David Farragut said, damn the torpedoes, another word for mines, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. And he went charging forward and he won the battle. Now, some would say that was reckless, but the point I make in the book is that he was imbued with the idea of doing that because he had done the research. He knew that many of these mines had been floating in the water for months and months he correctly believed that the one ship in front of him had hit a mine that was the one-off and he was willing to continue with his plan. So it's kind of the inverse of Decatur. In this case, he is gonna continue with his plan and it illustrates that in these moments of extreme stress, preparation, assurance, confidence are key elements to keep you literally sailing forward. It's interesting that some of the best decisions made in this book tend to not only involve the proper preparation, but a certain gut instinct for what to do in a given situation as well. Indeed. And, you know, finding the balance between those two things is really at the heart of the book to risk it all. And I think we give some examples in the book where uh, someone followed their gut and it turns out pretty badly. Other examples, someone follows their gut, it turns out well. Often the difference is in fact preparation. So the fourth example is with Cool Hand George, AKA Commodore George Dewey, who was the commander of the US Asiatic fleet for the Battle of Manila in 1898. What were the challenges for Dewey and his fleet entering Manila Bay and how did they overcome them, Jim? Uh, so Admiral Dewey was fighting against the Spanish. This is the Spanish-American War. And of course, the Philippine Islands at this point are a colony of Spain, an extension of sovereign Spain. So Dewey's mission as commander of the U.S. Asiatic Fleet, the Pacific Fleet, we call it today, his mission is to subdue the Spanish fleet, which is moored in and around Manila. And so he has several problems. One is extremely long logistics chains 
He has to be able to move ammunition, support from US uh, bases far, far away. And number two, lack of intelligence. You know, this is in 1898, there are no satellites overhead. We don't have a spy network. We don't have a CIA telling us what's going on. And so he's got to operate without intelligence. And then he has a breakthrough in that an American diplomat shows up in Hong Kong where he's getting the fleet together who has come directly from Manila, who knows the layout, who knows where the Spanish ships are. So he's able to fuse that intelligence at the last minute, get the logistics, move forward. And of course, we call him Cool Hand George because he takes his ships right into Manila Bay. They line up against the Spanish ships. And he says to his flag captain, the captain in command of his flagship, you may fire when ready, Gridley. Super calm. And, and really the message here is intelligence and preparation, a continuing theme. But Trey, it's also staying cool in battle. The job of an officer, the job of anyone in a stressful situation is to bring order out of chaos, not the other way around. Cool hand George, Admiral George Dewey did that quite well at the Battle of Manila Bay. Well, his decision was especially impressive when you learn, as I did in this book, that his fleet sailed within 5,000 yards of the Spanish fleet, with the Spanish fleet also having shore support as well. Uh, that's a difficult decision for somebody to make to be the aggressor in a situation like that. It is. And as a result um, of the battle, uh, the Spanish fleet was essentially destroyed and the American fleet undertook or received almost no casualties. It's really one of the most remarkable lopsided victories in American history. The fifth example is Cook third class Doris Dory Miller, who was a crew member on the USS West Virginia during the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Now, people who have seen the very overdone Michael Bay movie Pearl Harbor will remember the Cuba Gooding character, which, if I'm remembering correctly, was based on the Dory Miller character. So basically what he did for anybody who's not familiar is he was down low uh, in a safe duty station. And once the attack started, he went above deck. He went above to the bridge and actually ended up uh, helping out a uh, commanding officer get to safety who was mortally wounded and then ends up taking control of one of the guns and fires at the Japanese throughout the barrage of bombing and uh, enemy strafing going on. Where did his outright bravery come from, Jim? Yeah, this is uh, in many ways my favorite story in the book, and it, it, it comes from his heart. It comes from his upbringing. He grows up in hard scrabble, Texas, not many opportunities for an African-American. He's lucky to be a big guy. He's like 6'4", uh, 250 pounds. He becomes a Pacific Fleet boxing champion. Someone asked him once, by the way, how'd you become such a good boxer? And he said, well, my parents gave me a girl's name, Doris, and that's how I learned how to fight in Texas. Um, and, and so he goes to, as you told the story very well, this very heroic moment of real personal courage. And I got to say, throughout his life, he was known as someone who was very protective of others. And I think we, we all know people like that, kind of the gentle giant, somebody who will push the bullies away from smaller kids on a playground. That, that was always Dory Miller. 
And it, it came out of his heart, his background, his sense of humanity. And just to finish the story of Dory Miller, um, tragically, after the battle, he, he is not, he's awarded the Navy Cross. First African-American received the nation's second highest military award. And by the way, probably should have been a Medal of Honor. And that I think may get reversed over time. In any event, um, then he goes on a second ship because his battleship is sunk at Pearl Harbor. And he ends up on a light aircraft carrier called the Linscombe Bay. And two years after Pearl Harbor, that ship is torpedoed and Dory Miller dies at sea. Here's the ultimate punchline, which is a good one, which is that about two years ago, the Department of the Navy announced that our next huge nuclear powered aircraft carrier, 100,000 tons, seven acre flight deck, that aircraft carrier will be the USS Dory Miller. That's a pretty good story. So Dory Miller, USS Dory Miller will sail alongside our other nuclear carriers, USS Theodore Roosevelt, USS George Washington, um, on and on these iconic Americans. Dory Miller will take a place alongside them. It's a well-deserved ending for Dory Miller. Fitting honor indeed. The sixth example involves Admiral William Bull Halsey, who was commander of the U.S. Third Fleet. Uh, and uh, he had something happen in 1944, in the middle to end of October in 1944, that is one of the most tragic examples of making risky decisions in the face of conflict in this book. Why is that? Yeah, Bull Halsey is someone I idolized when I was a young midshipman at the Naval Academy. You know, his motto was hit hard, hit fast, hit often. He was lionized by the press, adored by the American public. But he was someone who would allow ego and his own sense of what ought to happen. That Back to that discussion we had about gut instincts. He relied, I think, too much on emotion and gut instinct. So it came to a head, as you correctly point out, in the Battle of Leyte Gulf. Leyte Gulf is an, a, another gulf in the, uh, in the Philippine Islands, biggest naval battle in history, in history. More ships, more sailors, US Navy versus Imperial Japanese Navy. Um, huge complex battle, but the bottom line and Halsey's great mistake is that at the very pinnacle of the battle, there's a Japanese force up to the north Halsey thinks that's the main force and without real justification, simply takes all of his combat power and goes away to the north. It's a wild goose chase. Meanwhile, the real Japanese strike force is coming through another channel. And in front of the Japanese strike force, their most massive, powerful battleships and cruisers is the lightly armed American landing force, hundreds of thousands of U.S. Marines and U.S. Army who are really at the mercy of these massive guns. It's shaping up to be a massacre. However, luckily for Halsey, he had left a, a small force, a tiny force of destroyers behind. These are very little ships, maybe 2,000 ton ships. These Japanese battleships are 80,000 ton ships. The, these little destroyers are no match for them, but these destroyers band together and charge the Japanese massive battleships. 
they launch smoke, they fire torpedoes, they fire their little pop guns, doesn't really have a lot of effect. The Japanese return fire and massacre them, the destroyers. It's called the last stand of the tin can sailors. We call destroyers tin cans in the Navy. But again, here's the punchline. Luckily for Halsey, the Japanese admirals in that main strike force, they believe that behind those destroyers, there must be Halsey and his heavy artillery, his battleships, his aircraft carriers. So the Japanese turn and depart. Meanwhile, Halsey is scrambling to try and get back in time. Those destroyers lost their lives. They lost everything. They risked it all, like the title of the book. And they were the salvation of Bull Halsey. Believe me, if those destroyers had not charged, this would have been a massive defeat, a massive black eye on Bill Halsey. Um, he was very lucky to be bailed out, pun intended, by those destroyers. How often does luck play into a risky decision made during conflict turning out good versus bad? I'd say based on a lifetime of making hard decisions, luck is a one in three. You know, mm. I always say luck is where, another way to think of it is luck is where opportunity meets preparation. Um, but I would say of the big hard decisions I've made in my career, I've been lucky. Luck has been the pivotal element one in three times, two in three times, um, preparation, a good decision, a solid grounding mattered. But one in three, luck is going to be a big factor. Maybe the saddest example that you include in this book is from Chapter 7, Lieutenant Lloyd M. Booker, commanding officer of the USS Pueblo, and his ship was seized by North Korea January 23rd, 1968. Essentially, he found himself in a lose-lose situation, Jim, when his intelligence gathering ship was surrounded by North Korean forces in international waters. And rather than to fight to the death, he chose to surrender. Now, this is something that does not sit well with a lot of Navy people and also those around the military. So why did he make this decision then? Uh, let me frame it one layer deeper, just so everyone is on the same sheet of music. This intelligence gathering ship he is fighting is tiny. It's effectively unarmed. It has a 50 caliber machine gun up front, has some small arms, a couple of pistols, a couple of rifles for the crew, small crew, a few dozen sailors. Its only mission in life is to listen. It is a information and intelligence gathering. Should be perfectly safe operating in international waters, but US naval intelligence did not pick up the fact that the North Koreans were laying in wait for something like this. Therefore, there was no air cover for Captain Booker's ship. There were no destroyers to protect him. There was no aircraft carrier nearby. And all he had when those North Korean forces and about half a dozen highly armed ships came out and surrounded him, they had MiGs overhead. Uh, Booker's only recourse was to try and delay as long as he could. He was sending messages to Navy high command the North Koreans gave him, your words, an impossible choice. They said, either you surrender your ship, which of course goes against every ethos of the US Navy, you know, see chapter one about John Paul Jones, I will not give up the ship, I will, I will, I have not yet begun to fight. That's door number one, give up your ship. Door number two, we're gonna kill all of you. We're gonna 
sink the ship and then any survivors floating in the water, we're gonna machine gun them. You will all die. It is the ultimate lose-lose. He has no means to effectively resist. So he delays as long as he can, hoping for a, a miracle rescue by the US Navy. That doesn't happen. Ultimately, he's forced to take that ship into port. His crew is held for over a year. They're viciously tortured. Finally, the US negotiates their release. He comes back, and I think this is very tragic, as you say, and he is subjected to a US court of inquiry, which recommends that he be court-martialed. And the reason for that, Trey, and I think it's hard for civilians to understand this, is because of John Paul Jones, because of what it says in Navy regulations, you will never give up your ship, except there's a little codicil to that that says, while you had the means to resist. My view, Admiral Stavridis's view, he was within the boundaries of rationality in surrendering that ship. There are other naval officers, many of whom I respect, who say, nope, Jim, you've just got this one wrong. He should have fought to the end. He should have gotten out his, his rifles, sent a crew member up to try and fire these 50 cows who would have been shot down immediately. It is the ultimate, I call the chapter, no way out. There really was no way out for Lieutenant Commander Lloyd Booker. Yeah, this is a much greater example of systemic failure than some sort of personal cowardice. Absolutely. What, what lessons did the U.S. Navy take from this unfortunate situation? We learned uh, to protect our intelligence ships much, much better. And today, um, that kind of intelligence gathering is actually conducted on board our huge, by comparison, Arleigh Burke destroyers, which have massive combat power operating in international waters, no one would come out and try and take a shot at them. Um, and in the rare cases that we use a, a smaller ship to gather intelligence, we do a bit of that with acoustic intelligence, listening for uh, opponent submarines, we provide very significant air cover for them at all times. So we learned a lesson there. That case study has been gone over a million times tactically by the US Navy. Um, Lloyd Booker deserved better than he got. The eighth example is Rear Admiral Michelle Howard and her team's rescue of Captain Richard Phillips from Somali pirates in the Indian Ocean in 2009. Of course, this story has been retold in the popular Tom Hanks movie, Captain Phillips. What was the difficult decision that Howard had to make and why was she able to make it so coolly? Um, let's begin by, by just saying, um, you know, whenever you say the words Admiral Michelle Howard, it puts a smile on my face. I've known Michelle since she was a midshipman at the U.S. Naval Academy. She's African-American. She's a, a very small person. I'm five feet, five inches tall. I tower over Michelle Howard. She's five feet tall on a good day. Uh, she is just a bundle of energy and leadership. She's commanded at every level in the Navy as a commander, as a captain. And so we come to this moment when she's a brand new one-star admiral. And so she's got a lot of experience, but she's never been a rear admiral. She's never been in command of a, a huge group of ships. She's got them all off the coast of East Africa, under my command, by the way, as a four-star, as the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. And so the mission I've given her is conduct counter-piracy operations. Well, here we come to Tom Hanks, AKA Captain Phillips, is the captain of a merchant ship taken over by Somali pirates. He gets taken hostage. He's quite heroic, by the way, in real life. Um, and it's a great story. 
He's now being held by these uh, Somali pirates on a small uh, lifeboat in effect. And, and here's where Michelle has to make a very hard decision. Her decision is to risk it all. Uh, what she's risking, of course, is the life of the hostage, Captain Phillips. I've been in command of a lot of these hostage rescue scenarios. They don't turn out well for the hostages. We always hear about the good stories when the SEALs ride in and rescue somebody. And that does happen. In my experience, two and three times, um, it goes badly for the hostages because you know the hostage holders know uh, to have somebody, a bag man on the hostages with a gun to their head. And the minute the, the hostage holder hears shots fired, boom, boom, two taps in the head for the hostages, um, that happens more often than not, let's put it that way. So Michelle has to risk this. Here's what she does, and here's why I include it in the book. She brings all of these assets together. Uh, the Navy SEAL Team 6, our national mission force, the very best operators and snipers in the world. She puts them on a destroyer. She has other destroyers around. She has all the command and control set up on her big deck amphibious ship, like a small carrier. She's putting it all together with intelligence. Um, she's lashed it all together, and here's the hard part. She knows she can't hold the trigger. She's got to delegate that because of the instantaneous nature of what has to happen. So she puts all the pieces in play and delegates to that commanding officer on board the destroyer. He then makes the right call. The SEALs take three shots, three hostages go down dead. An incredibly hard shot, by the way. This is on the back deck of a pitching destroyer and into an even small and more mobile an incredible trio of shots and you got to get it 100% right. You got to get three out of three. They do it, they rescue Captain Phillips. The takeaway for all of us is in these situations, you try and put all the pieces in play, but sometimes you got to let go and delegate to somebody else, be it an active shooter situation, uh, a life-saving uh, episode at sea, off a beach, wherever you are, you have to be prepared to delegate sometimes in that moment of great risk. And also great leaders don't seek credit either. I think that's another oh, important sub lesson. That's there. such a great point, Trey. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, one of my life mentors, Colin Powell, always used to say, you can get anything done if you're willing not to take credit for it. And by the way, Michelle Howard, when this book came out uh, just a few weeks ago, a book agent called me up and said, hey, I read the chapter on Michelle Howard. She's amazing. I want to be in touch with her so she can tell her story and write a book. And I communicate with Admiral Howard. She's now a retired four-star admiral herself. And her response was, nope, I've, I've told my story. I've done my work. She's not looking, as you say, for credit. Um, she's a remarkable woman. I have a lot of admiration for her. Yeah, big tip of the cap to her for that one. All right, the ninth and final example is another one, fortunate one, Jim. It involves Captain Brett Crozier, who was commanding officer of the USS Theodore Roosevelt when dealing with the COVID-19 outbreak on March 30th of 2020. So just a few weeks into the pandemic gripping this world, obviously, uh, he suffers an outbreak on his ship and he sends an email through an unsecured line that is eventually discovered or, or eventually passed along to, I think, a journalist for the San Francisco Chronicle. Right. That's reported. It creates an embarrassing situation for the Navy. Uh, what can be learned about Crozier's decision here? Yeah, let, let's start with two important facts to understand. 
Um, his carrier is a big ship, but it's got almost 5,000 people on it. And to give you a sense of how crowded it is, I'd invite anybody to think about your kitchen in a typical suburban household, except on a carrier, that kitchen, that kitchen-sized room, there's eight people living there, sleeping there in bunks that are stacked up. And by the way, they're sharing typically one shower and two commodes or two showers and one commode. It's, the space is extremely compact. So point is, there's no way to social distance on a carrier. And by the way, we're in March, 2020, there's no vaccines, no boosters, no palliatives, no antivirals. There's no solution other than social distancing. Can't do it on a carrier. So that's point one. Point two, it's peacetime. Brett Crozier is not in combat in the Arabian Gulf. He's not in a firefight uh, sending planes over Ukraine. It's not combat. He's literally on a show the flag cruise around the Western Pacific. So Crozier's point was, and I think it's the right point, we're not in combat. The only way I can protect my ship is bring it into port and get the crew ashore, spread them out, socially distance them. I think he made the right decision. The Navy wasn't supporting that largely through, and fair enough, a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding. Again, March, 2020, no one really knows what's going on here uh, with, with COVID. So he launches a, a frustrated email. As you say, it goes public. I call it the red flare. And as a result, he gets fired. So here's what we learned from that scenario. Number one, when you can, you put human life above the mission. That's the highest good. And that's what Captain Crozier shows us is when you're not in combat, you, you have to protect your crew. In other words, it's this idea of protecting others. And this is what he does, in my view, very, very well. Number two, when you make a decision, it can go badly. And it can go really badly, like for Lloyd Booker, who almost is killed. It can go very badly for Bill Halsey, who has luck and gets pulled out. It can go badly as it does for Brett Crozier, and it destroys his career. He's already had an amazing career. He's captain of a nuclear aircraft carrier, but I guarantee you Brett Crozier would have been an admiral in the Navy, would have gone further, one star, two star, three star, four star, who knows? Point is, he knew that. He knew when he hit send on that email, doing it on behalf of his crew, he took that risk, in this case, a career risk. He risked it all and he lost. Brett Crozier is retiring in the summer of 2022. My view, he can hold his head very high. He protected his crew. Last thought, when he was fired from the ship and he walked off the ship for the last time, thousands of his crew members, his shipmates, stood on that flight deck and applauded Brett Crozier, applauded him mm. powerfully. He can hold his head up very high in my view. And I think in this case, the Navy just got this one wrong. And uh, Brett Crozier, in my view, should have been reinstated. However, the point is, when you make a decision, in the end, inevitably, others will second guess you, and sometimes it will not go in your favor. And those who are second guessing you will not have been the ones who are there in the moment. And you know in your heart, you've made the right decision. Hold your head high, and Brett Crozier can do so. 
And final question, Jim, what is the best example of risk-taking in the face of conflict from your career? Um, I'm gonna give you two. And one was when I was a one-star admiral and it was in the Pentagon of all places. And it was September 11th, 2001. I was in the Pentagon on the side of the building that was hit by the aircraft. The airplane hit about 150 feet off to my right side. And in that moment, um, the Pentagon exploded in flame and all of us in the Navy are trained firefighters. And uh, as a result, we charge for the fires to try and help, to try and rescue those who we could. It was a failed mission. Um, the massive destruction uh, created an inferno. We were repelled. We stumbled out of the building. The real heroes of the day, the first responders showed up, the firefighters, the police. We were on the sidelines at that point. But the irony of this, the, the riskiest moment of my career should have been the safest. I've seen you know, my share of combat but the closest I came to dying in the service of my country was in the Pentagon, mm. in a massive concrete fortress guarded by the strongest military on earth in the capital of the richest country on the planet. Was I safe? No. That was a moment of ultimate risk for me. I was lucky to survive it, very lucky. And the other moment much earlier in my career uh, as a as an operations officer, kind of third in command of a cruiser um, in the Arabian Gulf doing earnest will operations in the, the hot summer of 1987. Um, Iranian aircraft coming in. Um, we're debating whether to put our jets up against them to fire missiles at them. We're also concerned it might be a civilian aircraft. I've got the firing key. I've got a target locked up. And I held back on turning that key and launching a missile. And thank God I did, because the target we had in our missile sites at that moment was a civilian aircraft. And I think at that moment, I realized um, how lucky I was, back to luck. Something told me, hold off another second or two. On the other hand, it could have gone exactly the other way and had given an Iranian jet an opportunity to launch a missile at my ship. So again, back to your point earlier, Trey, luck plays a role in all of these moments. There are two moments from my career where I held a lot of risk in my hands. And so does having that gut feel for a situation as well. He is retired U.S. Navy four-star Admiral James Stavridis. The new book is To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Jim, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this excellent book. Uh, Trey, thank you. And, and I'm like you. I'm, I'm someone who loves books, loves reading. Um, thank you for creating this podcast, which brings a lot of authors to a lot of people. I'm proud to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate that. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thank you to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forager Digital. And thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.